Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, today that we're recording is Saturday, February 24th, 2024. Uh, you are listening to this for the first time on Sunday, February 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we will be rebroadcast on Monday, February 26th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. My name is Jasmine and I'm here with my co-host Reese. How's it going, Reese? It is going. I am happy. It is Saturday. <laughs> it's been a long week. And yeah, happy to have some downtime. How you doing? Um, similar. You know, I'm enjoying the fact that it's it's still my weekend. It looks like a nice day outside. So once we're done, I'm going to go out, get some sun, stretch, get, you know, some exercise. Um, but I'm hanging in there, as I usually say. Um, So for our stories today, for the local news, we'll be talking about the sudden passing of a New York City icon. For national news, we'll be discussing um, a young black man who, you know, he was struggling against being told he had to change his hairstyle by his school and uh, recent updates on his case. Uh, for Nat- for world news, we'll be talking about the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding in Sudan, and we may or may not have um, a good news story at the end. We'll see if we have time. Um, so to get started with our first story, um, this article was written in The Guardian uh, by Ramon Antonio Vargas. And the title is Flacco, New York City's Beloved Owl Dies After Striking Building. The Eurasian eagle owl named Flacco, who escaped New York City's Central Park Zoo last year, has died after crashing into a building in Manhattan, officials said late on Friday. Flacco went down after striking a building on West 89th Street and people reported the injured owl to the Wild Bird Fund or WBF, a statement from the Central Park Zoo said. WBF staffers soon found Flacco unresponsive and pronounced him dead at the scene. Central Park Zoo officials said they went to pick up Flacco's remains after being notified of his death by the WBF. The remains were then taken to the Bronx Zoo to undergo a necropsy which I'm assuming is like similar to an autopsy, like to figure out the cause of death for the animal. The Central Park Zoo statement said its staff still hoped that the New York City Police Department was able to arrest whoever vandalized Flacco's enclosure on February 2nd last year, allowing the owl to escape the place where he had been been an exhibit for 13 years and live in the wild. The vandal who damaged Flacco's exhibit jeopardized the safety of the bird and is ultimately responsible for his death, the zoo's statement said. Flacco was rescued by the zoo in 2010 when he was less than a year old. He was reputed to be the only owl of his kind in the wild in North America, and there were widespread fears he ultimately wouldn't survive for long outside captivity. 
During the year and nearly three weeks he spent in the wild, he demonstrated the ability to catch rats in the park and his ability to fly strengthened. The zoo attempted to recapture Flacco with bait and recordings of eagle owl calls. Those tricks attracted interest from Flacco, but he never fell for them, prompting the zoo to abandon those efforts within a couple of weeks of the owl's escape. Flacco spent most of his time in the wild in and near Central Park, as well as at other locations across Manhattan. The Central Park Zoo said its staff monitored him throughout his days of freedom and were prepared to recover him if he showed any sign of difficulty or distress. Owls like Flacco are mostly solitary and usually interact with other animals only during breeding season leading some to speculate that the bird was in search of love whenever he ventured away from Central Park. As recently as November, Flacco took in a sunny afternoon in Central Park, yawning, stretching, and preening his feathers while largely ignoring a crowd of spectators. We appreciate all the support and concern over the well-being of Flacco throughout the past year and the many people who contacted us with updates the Central Park Zoo said on Friday. We especially appreciate the quick response by the staff of the Wild Bird Fund in their attempt to help Flacco. News of the owl's death caused an intense reaction on social media. More than 1,000 users reposted the zoo's announcement of Flacco's death on X, formerly known as Twitter. This is an immense loss, read one comment that summarized the sentiments of many on the platform. I'm so grateful for everyone who came together to witness Flacco's incredible journey. Another ex-user suggested tearing down the building where Flacco crashed. The Eurasian eagle owl is one of the larger species. Flacco's wingspan was reported to be about six feet or 1.8 meters. In October 2020, ornithologist Stephen Ambrose wrote on LinkedIn that there was evidence light glare from the city's buildings from city buildings windows could blind owls momentarily and increase their risk of crashing into the structures, especially at night. So yeah, like there's, you know, no shortage of different news stories to cover and um we typically and we will go on to cover you know, much heavier things in the human world, but this, um, it stood out to me and I was kind of surprised at how sad I was to hear about Flacco's passing. You know, I know I've enjoyed seeing the updates and seeing people kind of have something positive to look forward to seeing in the city. So really unfortunate that his days out in the wild ended this way. Yeah, that's really sad. And did you say that he was probably looking for love, which is why he escaped? They said, well, not that he, why he escaped. He escaped because someone did something. Like, I don't know what the reason was or what the purpose is. Maybe the person okay. deliberately wanted to free him. I don't know. But someone damaged his cage and that's how he got out. But he mostly stayed in the vicinity of Central Park. But in the article, mm -hmm. they're saying they think when he would leave the Central Park area, they think he may have been looking for another eagle owl. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's Aww. the he's the only one or he was the only one. 
And sad. I mean, you know, animals need they need affection too, you know. They and do. Birds are so in such an interesting species. You know, like I don't know if anybody else feels like that, but like I always have been intrigued by a bird's sort of like perspective. Um just like their visual perspective, of course. But the reality is that, you know, we see all these videos and things like that of animals uh, showcasing affection and stuff. So I always think about animals in zoos and, and animals that are in captivity for all the purposes that they are and how it really changes the course of their life and, you know, things of that nature. I mean, I know I can't consider them from a human perspective, but I mean, everyone needs love. So it's kind of sad that this this is the way that he, he went out. It is really sad, and I'm glad you brought that up because I really do think that it brings up questions about what it means to be free and to, like, live your life. Like, you know, it's, we're still in Black History Month, and, you know, last year in Black History Month, he said freedom, and he left. He wasn't going to be brought back into his cage. And I was reading up on this species of owl and how they can live pretty long. Like, it seems like they can typically live in the wild to be about 15 to 20 years. So Flacco passed away. He was 13. And there was also in the same Wikipedia entry that there's at least one that was in captivity that lived to be up to 68. But at the same time, it's like, okay, he may have lived longer if he stayed in his cage and he stayed as an exhibit. But is that how he's really meant to live? Is that what he wanted? Yeah, you know, and I I feel like, you know, animals are, they're smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. He probably could understand that, like, you know, these things that were supposed to lure him back, he probably kind of figured that, oh, this is taking me back to what I was in, but he was thriving, you know, and I don't know if you were able to watch like the pictures and the videos of him, but it was really impressive. And he was, they were acting like, Oh, he's just, he's not going to make it. He can't do it. Like he doesn't, they can't even fly properly. Cause, um, I remember going to the central park zoo and there was in the bird area, there was this big parrot that was walking around. Like, why is it walking? And the people are like, well, if they're young enough when they end up not being in the wild, they don't learn how to fly. Like, they'll just be walking around some of these birds and they never, they have their wings. Their wings aren't clipped, but they just don't know how to, and he didn't really have like a strong ability to hunt and to fly, but he learns. Like, he got better and better as he was out there, you know, and that's really impressive yeah absolutely well shout out to him and thank you for all of your years of keeping people intrigued and entertained bless little heart yeah there was also there was a recent article and also a video embedded in the article that abc news put out um because earlier this year people were reflecting on the fact that it had been a full year of him out in the open uh, a year in the concrete jungle with Flacco, the most famous owl in the world. Uh, and it was written by Bill Hutchinson and Nicholas Rothenberg. And there's like a three minute video just about his journey and what he means to people. And also a lot of really impressive artwork 
that people made of him and there's a photographer is she a photographer i think she is oh no she she's a tony nominated writer and also a playwright nan knight knighton i'm not familiar with her work but flacco would be in like the courtyard of her apartment and she was like what the like she wasn't used to seeing owls but he would just be at the window looking and she was like i just i look forward to whenever i see him out there like he's such a beautiful majestic creature um so yeah he was on colbert he was famous famous yeah for sure he was living you know we all gotta die someday but can you say that you truly live that's the question and flacco did that oh well i've always thought owls were intriguing so shout out to flacco and yeah we'll see who the next animal will be to surface if any to reach his level of fame yeah we'll see we'll see so rest in peace flacco like you meant you meant something to a lot of us in this city um I'm glad that he got his last year to just be out in the open. So you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our first musical break, in memory of Flacco, this is the Steve Miller Band with Fly Like an Eagle. We'll be right back. celebrate independent music communities at the 5th Annual New Colossus Festival, 
a five-day showcase festival taking place March 6th through 10th at eight independent music venues on the Lower East Side. This year's festival will feature over 130 emerging artists from all over the world, as well as the Ditto X NYC 24 Music Conference and networking event. Be sure to swing by Arlene's Grocery on Wednesday, March 6th for the new Colossus Festival Welcome Party presented by yours truly, Radio Free Brooklyn. Information regarding badges and show schedules can be found at www.newcolossusfestival.com. That's www.newcolossusfestival.com. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, this is Reese with our national news story. All right. So this story comes from the Times, New York Times. Um, The title is Black Student Suspension Over Hairstyle Didn't Violate Law, Texas Judge Rules. The trial was the latest development in the case that has prompted scrutiny of education policies of race in the United States. And the authors are Christine Hauser and Patrick McGee. A Texas judge ruled on Thursday that a school district's dress code, which it used to suspend a black student last year for refusing to change the way he wears his hair, did not violate a state law meant to prohibit race-based discrimination against people based on their hairstyle. The student, Daryl George, 18, has locks, or long rope-like strands of hair, that he pins on his head in a barrel roll, a protective style that his mother said reflected black culture. Since the start of his junior year last, last year in August, he has faced a series of disciplinary actions at Barbers High School, Barbers Hill High School in Mount Bellevue, about 30 miles east of Houston, after refusing to cut his hair. He was separated from his classmates, given disciplinary notices, placed in in in-school suspension, and sent to an off-campus program. The hearing on Thursday in the 253rd Judicial District Court in Anahawk, was in response to a lawsuit filed in September by the Barbers Hill Independent School District. The lawsuit argued that Mr. George was in violation of the district's dress and grooming code because he wears his hair in braids and twists at a length that extends below the top of a t-shirt collar, below the eyebrows and or below the earlobes when let down. The district asked state district judge Chap B. Kane III to clarify whether the dress code violated a state law called the Texas Crown Act, as the defendants, Mr. George and his mother, Teresha George, assert. The act, which took effect on September 1st, said district's policy may not discriminate against the hair texture or protective style commonly or historically associated with race. It does not specifically mention hair length. The Crown Act does not render unlawful those portions of the Barber Hill dress and grooming restrictions. Let me you that this has been an easy decision to make, the judge said. Addressing the family, he encouraged them to go back to the legislature or go back to the school board because the remedy you seek can be had from either of those bodies. Ali Booker, a lawyer for the Georges, says she would appeal the ruling and seek an injunction to prevent the district from punishing Mr. George pending the outcome of the federal civil rights lawsuit that he and his mother filed last year against the state's governor and attorney general. The George is left without commenting to reporters, more than a dozen of whom had gathered at the court's house. 
State Representative Jolanda Jones says she walked them to their car. When I accompanied Daryl and his mother to the car, I saw a child that was crying and he was upset and he didn't understand. Ms. Jones, a Democrat, said in the interview, his mother was visibly shaken. Dr. George Poole, the superintendent of the Barbers Hill Independent School District, said in an email statement that the ruling validated our position that the dress code does not violate the state law, which does not give students unlimited self-expression. The trial was the latest development in a case that has prompted scrutiny of education policies and race in the United States. At least 24 states have adopted laws that make it illegal to discriminate against a student or workers because of their hairstyle. The case involving Mr. George began soon after officials at the school objected to his locks and told Mrs. George that the length of her son's hair, even though it was pinned, violated the district's dress code. The district subjected him to punishments, including suspension, after he refused to cut it. Ms. George and her son filed federal civil, I'm sorry, Ms. George and her son filed a federal civil rights lawsuit in U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas in September against Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who signed the law, and the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, saying they allow the school to violate the act. Their lawsuit is seeking a temporary order to stop Daryl's suspension while the case moves through the federal court system and accuses Mr. Abbott and Mr. Paxton of purposely or recklessly causing Ms. George and Daryl emotional distress by not also said the measures violated the Crown Act. The family's lawsuit said that Mr. George wears locks as an expression of cultural pride and claims that his protections under the Federal Civil Rights Act are being violated because the dress code policy disproportionately affects black male students. In October, Mr. George was transferred to an off-campus disciplinary program. In December, he was allowed to return to his school, to his high school, but then was given another in-school suspension, this time for 13 days. In January, Mr. Poole, the superintendent, defended the policy in an advertisement published in the Houston Chronicle saying that the districts with dress codes are safer and have higher academic performance and that being an American requires conformity. <laughs> That's the end of the article. Um, what the fuck, man? I mean, I can't even believe that this had to go to a federal civil rights lawsuit um, over someone's hair, over a, a, a male student's hair who obviously is a junior in high school. He is, they didn't say anything about him having a disciplinary record. They didn't say anything about him causing disruption in the midst of all the things that they're doing to create an environment for him to disrupt. They're clearly provo- provoking him. Um, singling him out, sending him away to another facility over his hair. And then as soon as he comes back, putting him in in school suspension. I'm a little more concerned with the fact that how much school did he actually miss dealing with this bullshit? (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) This is really, you know, where how many years away from slavery and yet these things are still happening regularly and they're doubling and tripling down on it it's just you know it also makes me think about those um the residential schools that they were putting um native american children in and they had that expression to 
kill the Indian, save the man, you know, which is a horrifically racist and genocidal um, belief to have that you should try to destroy and break down somebody's connection to their own culture, their history, their people in order to force them into a cookie cutter generic image of what they said at the end of this article, what they say a quote unquote American is supposed to be. And they're doing the same thing with black children now. Black people yeah. in general, you know, not just kids. There's people at your job being, you can be treated differently. Absolutely. And, you know, just shout out to his mom for taking this as far as she can um, to even have this lawsuit against these, you know, legislators for not defending what this, this mediocrity that's happening in the school system. Um, it just, it just feels so overwhelming. And I can only imagine the conversations that they have in private um, about how and why it's important for them to facilitate moving this up the ladder so that it is getting this type of recognition. Other people have dealt with this for many years and may not have the know-how, the resources, or even just the temperament to take it to this level. But they're fighting for something that we've been fighting for forever, which is our own self-expression and cultural pride. Um, and, and honestly, at this point, with all of the um, reflection of Black culture in, pop, in popular culture, popular music, you know, someone wearing locks is so regular, so normal. It is a part of everyday life. It's not something that's rare to see um, in anything like that. So I think that the, you know, the deeper issue with this story is the self-hatred that is being inflicted upon these people. Uh, it's, you know, it's almost, I can imagine that this is going to be a story that he's going to remember forever in his life. And we're not hearing about his accomplishments. He's not working on trying to get to college. You know, this is ridiculous what they're taking this family through and the level of scrutiny that they are allowing to happen in their state when they have the Crown Act in place. They both signed it. Um, so it's just it's just very it's it's just frustrating. Um, black people struggle constantly. It's never enough for us to stop talking about our struggles because they exist in so many different ways and so many different places. Um, this is some bullshit, but also there are levels of scrutiny that happen that are not spoken about. And people just lose jobs for reasons like this. They get no explanations, um, no professional coaching. If it's something that has to do with maybe their expression, the way that they speak, or if there's a um, confusion about something that they mean. So I just want to acknowledge the strength of his mom for taking this on and really pushing this issue so that we're talking about it here today because she's really doing the work that all of us need someone to do for us no matter what your situation is or how you're being discriminated against is these type of realize that racism and prejudice is still very much alive and people are still dealing with shit like this um, for just being for just being black people and you know it's never enough to act like things are different because they really aren't that different it's just a different time yeah it's like the more things change the more they stay the same and I was also reminded um, in 2020 there was a high profile case in Jamaica 
So, you know, you're talking about lot they're talking about dreadlocks, like the place where, you know, people most associate with dreadlocks. Like there was a young girl and the school she went to was banning her because she had dreadlocks. She was like a five year old. Um Yeah, and you know, the court a high court in Jamaica said the school had the legal right to do that. You know, in Jamaica. So this is a majority black country. But as we can see, you know, you don't always need a white face to impose like these white supremacist beliefs and these beliefs that things that are inherent to us or natural to us are inferior or wrong or unprofessional. It's like a lot of these standards that people think are neutral, they're not neutral at all. Like they come from anti-blackness and trying to force that pride in what you are and how you look and your features and your culture, making you feel like there's something wrong with it and it needs to be changed in order for you to get somewhere in this country. And I, for one, hope that this child, that he is says, screw that, and he keeps wearing his hair however he wants to wear it because at the end of the day, these institutions are not for us. And they don't want us to do well. Like they want us to be like bowed and broken. And I hope yeah. that he continues to say that he won't be. You know, I know, you know, this wasn't the outcome that they wanted. They might not get the legal outcome, but I think, you know, forget what the courts say. Right. Do it and make them do something about it. Exactly. You know, exactly. she's going to do pull it out of my head right and if you try that then you you know have something for them that's this right that's right ridiculous keep on keeping on black people resistance is existence and shout out to all the freedom fighters that fight these small battles that denote these larger outcomes right yeah good good luck to mr george and his family you know sending them you know strength in this time because it's not easy anywhere in this country right now, but especially, you know, being black in a lot of these southern states, it's getting extra, extra hard, um, even on our children, as we can see. So, you know, we'll keep following this story. Right on. So you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is from the musical Hair. This is um, singer, songwriter, activist, freedom fighter, Nina Simone with Ain't Got No, I Got Life. We'll be right back. Ain't got no sisters or brothers Ain't got no hurt 
education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org donate. Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, um, this is our world news story. So this information comes from an ABC News article written by Emma Ogao and Olivia Austin. Uh, the title of the article is Sudan Faces Perfect Storm as Civil War Sparks Humanitarian Crisis, Aid Groups Warn. Uh, and this was written on February the 22nd, 2024. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It is quite lengthy, um, but this is the majority of it. Uh, a humanitarian perfect storm is brewing in Sudan as hunger looms, health systems collapse, and millions are displaced, the World Health Organization warned last week in a briefing. Just over 10 months since the start of the conflict between the Sudanese Armed Forces, or SAF, and the Rapid Support Forces Paramilitary Group, or RSF, aid organizations say Sudan is being plunged into a humani humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. Sudan is now one of the largest displacement crises globally, with nearly 8 million people displaced due to the ongoing conflict. Peter Graf, the WHO's the WHO's representative to Sudan said in last week's briefing, about 25 million people in Sudan need humanitarian assistance, 18 million of whom are facing acute hunger, 5 million at emergency levels of hunger. 
The conflict, which erupted on April 15, 2023, between the RSF and the SAF after weeks of tensions linked to a plan for returning the country to civilian rule after the dissolution of Sudan's government, has killed at least 12,000 people, according to the UN. Local groups, however, say the true toll is likely much higher. Speaking to ABC News over the phone, Dr. Arif Noor, Save the Children's Country Director for Sudan, says the impact of the war on Sudan has been devastating. Noor said, almost 50%, if not more, of the nation is witnessing active conflict. There have been indiscriminate attacks on hospitals, schools, and public services, irregular water and electricity access, and large-scale internet blackouts. Niamat Amhadi, a Sudanese activist based in Washington, D.C., told ABC News that she did not speak to her family in Sudan for six months during the country's first communication blockade. Since the conflict broke out, the two warring factions have utilized internet shutdowns to block communication in areas controlled by the opposing side, activists say. A major communication blockade has currently been in place for the past two weeks, sources told ABC News. Ahmadi, who survived the early 2000s Darfuri genocide, said the current conflict in comparison is the worst in our lifetime citing not only these communication blockades, but also aid blockades. Ahmadi told ABC News that both sides are using humanitarian aid as a tool also to control people's survival by preventing necessary aid from reaching those it is intended for. The health system is on the brink of collapse, if not already collapsed in some areas, added Noor and women and children especially are facing the brunt. The outbreak of the conflict has led to the displacement of nearly 3 million children, in addition to 2 million displaced in previous crises in Sudan, leading to the world's largest internal displacement crisis for children, UNICEF said. While the needs of the ravaged nation continue to mount, and organizations persist in sounding alarms calling to address them. Funding for the crisis is not adequately flowing, UNICEF spokesperson James Elder said in a February press briefing. Despite the magnitude of needs, last year the funding UNICEF sought for nearly three-quarters of children was not forthcoming, Elder stated. UNICEF has been appealing for $840 million to provide multi-intervention humanitarian assistance to Sudanese families since last year. Dalia Mohamed Abdel Moniem, a Sudanese journalist turned activist currently based in Egypt after being forced to flee her home in Khartoum, Sudan, has lamented the lack of funding. It's not even a trickle. I wouldn't even call it a trickle. It's breadcrumbs. I don't know what it is, but no, there's no money coming in whatsoever, she told ABC News. Elder, in his briefing, also urged the public to consider the generational repercussions of the crisis. 
the true cost of war isn't just measured in casualties, but also in the loss of intellectual capital, and this war risks condemning Sudan to a future bereft of learning, innovation, progress, and hope, he, ab he advised. Abdel Moniam agreed, telling ABC News, a lot of the youth, those who are under the age of 30, in their life, they've seen nothing but war and destruction. How can you guarantee for them that, you know what, there's a future here? The Sudanese Armed Forces last week announced it had regained control of the city of Amdurman from the Rapid Support Forces following intense fighting in its first major advance since the onset of the war. But fighting between the RSF and SAF continues, with clashes between the two sides in Sudan's capital Khartoum, West, North, and Central Darfur, Kordofan, as well as Sudan's breadbasket state, Al Jazeera. Um, so, yeah, that was a lengthy read, but I think it did a good job of outlaying just the magnitude of the crisis unfolding in Sudan right now. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking, and I don't think that it's getting the amount of attention internationally that it deserves. Um, so I'm hoping that the more of us are speaking up and bringing awareness, like there will be more pressure to do something about this because it, 8 million people displaced, that's like if everyone in New York City where I'm at right now had to just up and move because of, you know, fighting between different military factions broke out. Like, could you imagine everyone in the city having to find someplace else to go? You don't know where your next meal is coming from, if you'll have water. Yeah. No, I can't imagine. And I feel like this crisis has been going on for so long. You know, I'm not sure um, exactly when this became labeled as a crisis, but I feel like this has been going on for most of our lives. Um, I guess we can do a quick fact check on that, but it just seems so sad because obviously the fighting is not getting anyone anywhere, but it's just creating this, you know, almost unearthing crisis that quite honestly, will it ever be able to be fixed? Will it ever be able to be, will that country be ever be able to be restored? You know, cause you know, the thought of the generational damage of what's happening, I'm sure there's many generations that grew up there and still dealing with this, or if they did have an opportunity to leave, those back home are still in the crisis and that's what happens in uh, complex situations like this. Um, and it's very difficult for humanitarian aid to even keep up with the level that's necessary or even get into the people who really needs it. And it's just very, very sad to watch this country just keep continue to have these issues and go through it years and years at a, at a time. Right. And I know, um, we talked about it in a different episode. Um, it was focused on, um, I think, boy children being targeted who are part of the Mazalit tribe. And I did want to underscore, like, just the the anti-blackness that is at the base of a lot of these issues, because, like you mentioned, um, Sudan and crisis, crises in the in Sudan have been, you know, in 
headlines not you know i don't think it's been at the forefront but i remember hearing about this for quite some time mm-hmm. and um, the guardian i believe it ha- has what from what i can glean it seems like it's a good explainer about the sudan conflict um so if you go to the guardian they have an explainer titled sudan conflict why is there fighting and what is at stake in the region by adam mm-hmm. fulton and oliver holmes and they mention that um, the RSF was founded by the former dict- dictator of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir. And he created that um, the RSF to crush a rebellion in the Darfur region. So I remember hearing about Darfur when I was mm-hmm. like in middle school, when I was a kid. And... Yeah looking at more into that it's like people in Darfur were complaining that the Sudan central government which was controlled by like a lot of um, Sudanese Arab people they were marginalizing politically and economically the non-Arab black population like different groups including Darfuris so the dictator created this military group to terrorize and crush people that were pushing against that. And it's now, you know, I'm simplifying it, but it's now snowballed into, you know, this group is now fighting, you know, these other groups that are being led by a different military leader. So, you know, it, it really does have like at, at its core, you know, people suppressing you know, to us, they, they seem like, oh, they're all black. And in our context, they are. But even in some other parts of the world, it's like the people who are darker skinned, they don't have a certain type of ancestry. They even get, you know, put down by others in their same country, yeah. which is just spiraling out. And, you know, Bashir is no longer there. But when you empower these military groups to try to protect your own power, you have all these violent people ready to do whatever. So instead of this a peaceful transition, and there were peaceful activists doing sit-ins and things, trying to get control back for the people and not the military, that got all messed up by these, you know, rival groups and it's all the civilians just caught in the middle in the bloodshed and it's just it's so horrific like I can't even imagine just the numbers and the scale of what's going on yeah and it's it's to a point now where what would have been considered some level of aid or something it you know it's, it's really not that impactful anymore especially because it's been going on so much, you know, a lot of times with these complex situations, what happens is the people in place to help them end up being victims of this war, victims of this conflict. And all of a sudden the channels that are put in place to try to help overcome these things are no longer effective. So um, it's just very sad because sometimes you can't really see an end. You really can't see an end to problems like this. And that's the scariest thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And um, I do want to highlight Al Jazeera has an article that lists different ways you can donate to the Sudan refugee response. Um, And they list some organizations like 
UNHCR, the UN's refugee agency, uh, which is present on the ground and they've set up an emergency relief page where individuals can donate. There's Islamic Relief, Doctors Without Borders, Muslim Aid, and Save the Children. Um, so it, it, it might not seem like a lot, but you know, you see what our governments are spending billions, billions and trillions of dollars on. And even in this conflict, you know, maybe it's not front in the news, but, you know, there's outside forces that are arming these groups because they have interests in trying to control the resources and they don't want this other country to have influence. So, the money is going into the country, but it's not going to help people. You know, so if you want to, like, those are some organizations that you can reach out to. Um, if you're on Twitter, like, there's a hashtag, keep eyes on Sudan, that I would encourage you to follow. Um, because there's people who are refugees themselves, or they have family who are, that are, you know, trying to get information out about what their family is going through. Um, and especially with an information blackout, which is very scary. Sometimes all you have is social media, like little bits and pieces to even keep up with what's happening there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so much trouble in the world. Yeah, you know, it's. I wish that we did have more good news for Black History Month, but you know, sadly we do not, or at least not that I'm aware of at the time, at the moment. Just try to, gotta try to keep each other up and, you know, something I, that me and my coworkers were talk, talking about the other day who are not black. I was telling them that, you know, there is a black history celebration down in Inglewood tomorrow. And I don't feel like I've done anything this year to celebrate. I am, um, producing a concert at my job that is actually going to be on the last day of Black History Month because some other politics that I care not to discover but or discuss but um you know being intentional about having those experiences especially since I've been out here on the west coast is is difficult you know it's not readily available and it makes it very challenging um to to remember like, oh, let me make sure I'm intentional about celebrating my own culture, celebrating my own self, supporting my people, supporting the efforts to sustain the memory of people who have gone before me. Um, yes, you know, it's so many things in this world to distract us and make us not want or have the energy or effort to do this. So we have to be intentional about our ways and how we support and celebrate and sustain ourselves um, from a cultural perspective and a personal perspective. I know that it very much helps that I can have this platform to speak about the things that are important to me, but also just in mere celebration, because life is so hard. You know, life is so hard every single day. So to have a moment where you can actually feel good about yourself without, you know, the scrutiny of what you look like, as in the story that we talked about, or the traumas of other people that affect your life, your legacy, and the history and the, the future of your generation is, is very hard. So 
I guess what I'm trying to say is make it your business to celebrate and support and be a part um, of these very intentional moments of celebration. And uh, because without us, there wouldn't be no us. There would be no celebration without people who care enough to sustain us. We would be wiped out. They're trying to wipe out any history of us, period. Um, so, you know, just just a, somewhat of a call to action, but also just a recognition point that it gets harder and harder every day to remember that it's okay for us to celebrate and be who we are. So we right. Each other up. Right. And, you know, you really put it beautifully and you're absolutely right. And, you know, those of us who are still here, you know, we're on the shoulders of people who didn't give up and they did find ways to still celebrate um, to make music, to have, you know, dancing, you know, whatever. And that is a part of resisting as well, like to refuse to just give up and roll over and say, I'm done. So absolutely. So yeah, we hope everyone who's listening, you know, find a way to celebrate Black history in your day-to-day life and not just, you know, not just in this month, but every month. You know, because we're here and there are black people in the future. There will be. All right. So you have been listening to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. And um, recently there was a passing of Ederlene DeBarge, who was a gospel singer mother of 10 she passed away at the age of 88 and she was the matriarch of the debarge family uh so if you're familiar with r&b music you know they had a string of hits back in the day and you know they have a lot of struggle in their story as well but they do also have like a legacy of the music that they created and you know have been a part of black culture for a while um, and Miss Ederlene, she released a memoir in 2007 called Other Side of Pain. So she's someone who lived through a lot. You know, I know her husband, like the father of all of her children, was not a good man. She had to suffer through that. She lost some of her children, but, you know, she lived to a ripe old age and um, has an, an, a very inspiring legacy in her own right. So to close us out for our last um, episode of Black History Month for this year, this is Stay With Me by DeBarge. Have a good rest of your week, everybody. Bye. Bye, y'all.